Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome, everybody. Very special event planned. We have the trial team from Coindesk that covered the entirety of the SBF FTX, well, just SBF trial here today to give us a look inside the courtroom over the last, what, two weeks? Last month? Wild. I'm very excited about this. I'd like to invite Mark up, who's going to be our moderator. We'll have Q&A at the end. Uh, I'll turn it over to Mark, who's going to run the entire show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, thank you, Thomas. Thank you all for coming. Good evening. So as Thomas mentioned, we are going to be talking about covering the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. Just as a reminder, folks, Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. He faces many years in prison, very likely. We'll get into the specifics of that, I'm sure. Before my colleagues introduce themselves, I do want to say that um, you guys should feel free to raise your hands early and often if you have questions. Uh, we want this to be, um, this should be an interactive uh, discussion. So please raise your hands anytime and I will come over with the mic. So to start, the uh, man who planned and led the coverage, Nick, introduce yourself. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Nick. I am an editor with Coindesk. And yeah, this was, a, this was an interesting month. We had a whole plan, coverage plan for covering this trial that this team of folks here and Mark and one of our other colleagues, Nick Baker in Chicago, executed to perfection. So glad to be here. Liz, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Liz Napolitano. Um, I'm on Nick's team on the policy and regulations team at Coindesk. And I cover crypto. Sam? Hi, I'm Sam Kessler. I'm Deputy Managing Editor of Tech and Protocols at Coindesk, um, but they let me report on the trial, so I did, and it was a really cool experience. Hi, I'm Danny Nelson. I cover uh, data and tokens at Coindesk, and uh, I had the pleasure of being on the trial team, too. As you can see, we very carefully rehearsed all of our lines tonight. Yes. Uh, to kick it off, Nick, talk about just what life was like in the courthouse during the month of October. It was pretty, I would say, different, right? And there's a couple of folks here who were in the courthouse every day as well alongside us, so they can, you know, confirm what I'm about to say. It was a very regimented kind of lifestyle for us. We had to show up at the courthouse uh, in time to get into either the courtroom or to maybe snag uh, one of the better seats for the overflow rooms, which were just courtrooms that they piped a feed of the proceedings into. Uh, there were so many people that, you know, some days when you had high profile witnesses like Carolyn Ellison, Sam Bakeman Fried himself, or some of the other FTX insiders testify, you had, you know, a massive crowd outside in the morning just lining up. You had to go through security. You know, they took any electronic devices that had access to the internet. So phones, laptops, uh, hotspots, smartwatches, if you wore them, and they kept them. And so you were restricted to, you know, I had, I bought a $20 watch from Walmart. So I just keep track of time, but otherwise we were restricted to, you know, pen and pencil, paper, the old fashioned way of doing journalism back in, you know, before the internet was a thing that ruined our lives. You know, we had to take notes. We had to run out with stories. If we were filing real time updates, we had to come back in. They, they literally called it in. We literally, yeah, we literally, you know, sometimes we'd come out, we'd get on the phone with Mark or Mr. Baker and uh, say like, okay, here's what just happened. And then we'd read off our notes and say, okay, well, here's the story of like the last two hours. And, you know, it was weird because we had to get to the courthouse some days 
pretty early. And Danny can talk more about this in a bit. If you wanted a good uh, spot in the courtroom, you had to get there really early. Danny, what's the earliest you showed up? Yes, uh, as the chief masochist officer at Coindesk, uh, I was in charge of getting there really early. Uh, we thought it was early during Caroline's testimony when we got there at 4 a.m. And then for Sam's days, I woke up at 12.20 a.m. And I got there by 1.15. And that was good to be the... And, 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 and uh, what place in line did that get you? Yes, uh, that was good for spot number five. One of our former colleagues, Sage D. Young, he, on the first day of Sam's testimony, showed up at 10.40 p.m. That was a rainy night, so he sat in the rain, just sad and alone for a couple hours before he was joined by anyone. The chief irony, by the way, was that every single other person who showed up early were the same people that were freaking out with us in the day leading up to the day that they had to show up early, afraid that members of the public would steal oh, their seats. Yes, the, the worst part. Of, the worst part of everything was that, like, there are twenty-one seats in the courtroom for general public, for which includes regular press, not court press, and. There really were only 20, 25 people who would show up early. So on the second day of Sam's testimony, I got there at 1. A lot of other people got there. We got to like number 15 by 3 a.m. And then we didn't get to number 20 until 4.30. So we all could have slept in a lot longer. Um, but instead, we were just hustling and trying to undercut each other. And so that clear, was terrible. This was absolutely a self-created problem. Yes, it was. Self-created, self-perpetuated. On the last day, sorry, the last day of Sam's testimony... There was someone who showed up at around 11 uh, p.m. the night before. And I think we didn't get to 20 people until like six. Yeah. It, wow. After that, we decided we needed to coordinate better because this was just a race to the bottom. Yeah, it was terrible. But it was the interesting worth it. thing is, though, that like the system for which like they decided who would be in the main courtroom was like, created by the reporters during that trial. So, I mean, like before, like I think it was David from The Times created that like list Oh, no, no, it was Boxworth Girl. It was yeah. Molly Jane Zuckerman. Yeah. No, originally, it was Liz from The Verge. Oh, oh yes. wow. Liz from The Verge. She was the expert because she had covered uh, the Theranos trial, which was the last big uh, C-suite white-collar fraud trial in the U.S., and she had been covering that, and so she was used to the early morning. So her innovation was, instead of just sitting in line out, outside the courtroom, we would create the list, and we'd fill out the list, and we'd abide by the list, and the list would allow us to do things like go get coffee, or in my case, go uh, to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom, or in my case, one day I got there, I left for three hours, I slept on one of my friend's couches in Brooklyn. Well, he's here now. Hi, yo, Tom. And then three hours later at 5 a.m., I came back to the courtroom. Uh, so I slept on the couch for three hours. You know, this is being streamed and recorded, right? The other list people are going to find you after this. That's fine. Yeah. Trial's over. I'm not doing this for trial number two. <laughs> so this is, I mean, there was a lot of drama in this case. I mean, this was not, you know, even though we're talking about money, we're talking about finance, we're talking about abstract internet assets, it was a very emotional proceeding. Liz, what, what is the most memorable moment for you from the trial? I mean, to me, I guess just, to me, I think Caroline's testimony really spoke to me. I guess as a young woman, like when she um, was speaking about, you know, her relationship with Sam as like her boss and like her former lover and, you know, like her voice kind of broke and she was holding back tears. That kind of felt very real to me because before that, you know, everything we'd heard about like Caroline and Sam's relationship was like through like internet memes and like, you know, jokes and like, you kind of forget that there was like real people behind this case that are, you know, like their lives are destroyed. Now they're going to prison because they decided to steal billions of dollars. <laughs> like I said, it's kind of deserved. Eight billion, yes. <laughs> yes. To that point, I, I think that also worked on both ends. We So Nick and I and Danny, um, the three of us were in the courtroom when the verdict was read off. You know, guilty, 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 guilty. That's seven. Was that seven? Yeah, yeah. that many times. Was was not a lucky number for for Sam. Each time, um, you saw, you know, Sam's parents and his dad would like sink further and further into his like hands, in his face, into his lap. It was a pretty like deeply disturbing scene for all of us who were there covering this every day. It's like kind of this competitive sort of competitive, not between us, but it feels like a competition almost, or like a game, a sport that you're watching sometimes, and you have to remind yourself or get reminded in moments like those that there is that deeply human element on both sides, um, depending on, you know, how you look at those, the parents. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that last moment, I think, for all of us was pretty harrowing seeing them standing behind Sam and huddled together. And then when he's like, you know, shuffled out, he hadn't looked at his parents until, you know, the very, very last moment as he's being let out the door by a marshal. 
And he looks back at them as they're like kind of thronged by, you know, dozens of these reporters like us with our notebooks out. Um, yeah. And his parents kind of like his mom just goes like this. It was just really. He nodded and it was. Just, yeah, he did a whole like very emotional like that. It was literally it was hard to write how yeah, that happened. It, would, it felt rather voyeuristic. And it's yeah. weird because yeah. for over a year and it was exactly one year to the day of the Ian Allison story that discussed the balance sheet, which uh, on November 2nd, 22, we, we at Coindesk didn't say. Look oh, Dan, over Danny, there. Danny, the award-winning well, okay, Ian Allison The award-winning, it behooves you to say, but but um, the multiple award-winning, but not the not the Pulitzer, unfortunately. Anyway, we did not at Coindesk say, look, Alameda is stealing FTX customer funds. What we said was Alameda has some funky stuff happening on the balance sheet that caused speculation, that caused fear, that caused CZ to pull the gun on FTX and Alameda, and that caused the run, and that run exposed the hole in the balance sheet and in the companies, and that caused the fraud to be exposed. But it was a year to the day of that article for the conviction to come down, which was um, itself a bit ironic. Nick, what was your most unforgettable moment? I'm going to be honest, that entire month kind of blends together now. So um, I think for me, there was this moment where uh, Sam was going to testify in his own defense, but there were certain arguments that he wanted to, his defense team wanted to bring up. And the judge wanted to hear kind of a preview to see whether or not he would allow those you know, arguments to be made. And it was pretty, I would say brutal is probably the right word. He was fine on direct examination when his own attorney was asking him all these questions about, you know, to what extent were lawyers involved in these things? Did they know about the things you signed, the documents? But when the prosecutor, Assistant U.S. Attorney Daniel Sassoon, took the, uh, took the lectern to you know, cross-examine him, he crumbled. It was... I mean, to be to give some context, I think that the AUSA was having a little bit of maybe fun is a word for it. Like she was definitely kind of going a little bit beyond just purely what was interesting for the court. But his answers were just so kind of horrifically bad that they kind of portended like in what way? Like he was just not able to answer a lot of questions. He was um he was just really obstinate. Like he just seemed like kind of like one of those kids that like his parents tell him he's like really smart and everything. And then like, you know, like somebody kind of told him like, oh, you're really not all that. And then he just kind of like mad. Like he was just like a brat on the stand. And I think like that, like part of the fact that like the jury was able to like find him guilty on all these counts, like, despite the fact that the case was so complex was because like he just like a detestable person like in the during the cross. And, 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 he, and he was like, we, we stay objective here at Coindesk. <laughs> well, and to be clear, you know, I'm just talking about the preview. I mean, he did not get much better when he was doing the actual cross-examination with the actual jury. But, you know, his kind of his overall tone, his demeanor, you know, it kind of it really did kind of portend like that was a point where, again, I think for a lot of us here, we've been following this case for a year and, or more. Uh, the jury had been, you know, dunked into it on October 4th. They had no context, no idea what was going on with FTX or anything before that. But that was the point when he was doing that practice run where I thought like, oh, the jury is really not going to warm up to him if he's like this, you know, when he's testifying before them. And he was not any better. You know, he was marginally better, maybe a little bit more, you know, clear and concise, but he was just not any better with his demeanor, with his tone when doing the actual cross-examination. And, you know, I think that as much as anything probably helped uh, lead to the conviction. And, and, that, and that raises a very pertinent question, which is why the hell did this guy take the stand in the first place? Oh, I mean, like... Because usually, like, you know, it's, it's very rare in criminal trials to do that. I mean, Martin Shkreli offered a whole analysis on Twitter. I don't know if we want to go by him. But I just feel like Sam kind of, um, he comes off as somebody that he, he really didn't seem to trust his defense attorneys. So it seemed like, you know, he was somebody that even like when he was like engaging with his like his inner circle, he liked to handle everything himself. Right. And um, I think he like took that same attitude of like, you know, um, assuming responsibility for everything and like taking charge, like in his defense as well. And you can't do that when you're on trial because it's like, you know, he's not an expert in the law. But um, yeah, I, I, his ego just got in the way is the best way to say. Well, it. look, this is a guy who genuinely thought that he did not do wrong. Right. There's a reason why this trial happened so quickly, and it's because he elected to not gunk things up. His lawyers could have done any number of things to slow this thing down. The government was really fast at bringing the case, but he could have delayed this. He thought he had an advantage, and he thought that it was in his best interest to have this speedy trial come as fast as possible. And, you know, this, he also spent the, the month after FTX collapsed 
going on, as we heard in trial, Good Morning America and other television shows and other media outlets trying to defend himself and say, look, it went wrong, but we didn't do fraud. So he thought that he would not be found criminally liable. And uh, I don't think he really accepted that that wasn't the case until it was all over. I also think that to an extent, you know, as far as the question of, you know, why was he on the stand? I don't think he really had a choice. His defense didn't really have a strong case, right? The government's case was, here are all these text messages, these spreadsheets, these, you know, emails, you know, all these things showing that uh, Bankman Freed directed all these things. And they had his co-conspirators, his, you know, fellow former insiders all saying, oh, yeah, you know, Sam was in charge. He told us to do all of this. And the defense's case was, well, you know, he wasn't really paying attention to you know, as close to, you know, as close attention to all these things as he should have been because he was busy running a multi-billion dollar empire. And so he wasn't looking at the spreadsheets that they found a Google employee to say, oh yeah, he definitely opened it up. He, that was their argument. And a bit of additional context that, you know, we didn't really get into during the trial itself. The original defense was going to be, Sam thought he was okay with everything he was doing because lawyers signed off on everything he did. And the judge basically slapped that argument down and said, you can't bring this up. And that goes to the preview of the hearing of the testimony before. Uh, but the judge kind of said, you know, that's a ridiculous, you know, way to kind of defend yourself. You know, I'm not going to allow that. So the defense was really restricted to what they could eventually argue. And what they landed on was, you know, Sam was a, a good, innocent boy who was in over his head and was way too busy to keep track of the $8 billion that had gone missing that he didn't ask any questions about uh, after he learned about it, which the jury found apparently not super compelling. One thing I, I found interesting was uh, there was discussion of his hair uh, from both both sides of the case. And uh, I think the defense was trying to argue that, uh, or no, I'm sorry, that they were saying, were they saying he was too busy to get a haircut? Wasn't that, wasn't that what he testified? I, I think that was his personal defense. He was, yeah. uh, th- th- someone said he was too lazy to, I think it was himself. No, he said um, it, yeah. He, yeah. He said he was too busy and too lazy to get a haircut. And so that's why his hair was what it was but but much more interesting was why the prosecution brought it up yeah i mean the the prosecution was trying to argue the one part of their argument which i frankly thought was one of the weaker parts of their argument was the idea that sam tried to cultivate this you know visual image of himself as this sort of you know um yeah schlubby uh long hair uh cargo shorts t-shirt guy he, um, he certainly you, did you, cultivate you that he image. Did cultivate that image and it was supposed to make him seem eccentric and earnest and like you know it was supposed to make him seem authentic in interviews but um the reason why i think that was kind of a, a flimsier piece of their their argument was because it doesn't really strike to the core of the the money laundering fraud allegation right. riot fraud all of that and i do think you know they didn't focus that much on it for that reason because anybody tries to cultivate an image around themselves steve jobs you know wore his turtlenecks so, I feel so like did the turtleneck anyway. was better though. i think yeah. it's made i mean I, I think as a result of him making it such a big thing it was also made a big thing in this case yeah. but i don't know i thought it was kind of like not as big of a deal as it was being out to be also he stayed schlubby even after the fraud so yeah. <laughs> well he, he was wearing a suit i, I mean was, honestly wearing wearing the suit. prison haircut was the best haircut he got which oh, we wow. should tell you about like <laughs> Wow, guns like fighting words. Like I don't know. But- I couldn't really, you know, buy the prosecution's, you know, argument there because I was like, okay, you know, like if the prison haircut is the best haircut you've ever gotten in your life, then like, uh, you know, maybe you're just schlubby. Like maybe you're not just trying to portray that image. The prison haircut, by the way, that he got from his, you know, roommate. Did um, he get it from his celly? I don't know. Yeah, his cellmate. Yeah, his cellmate. In celly. prison. That's the word for it. No, no, I, excuse I, me. Yeah. Danny knows. No, I, yeah, I do think that part of the DOJ argument with that line of questioning was just. You know, the, the line of questioning, the other questions were, uh, this was with Carolyn Ellison. They were asking about the car he drove. And she oh, testified, well, first we drove these luxury cars. Or we had these luxury cars. Uh, but then later, Sam told them to get a Honda Civic and a Toyota Corolla or Camry, whatever it was, to make them look better. So I think what the DOJ was going for was just trying to say, like, oh, well, you know, everything he does is calculated. It's not, you know, he's not as out of touch or whatever. He's, like, deliberately part of, you know, these proceedings and processes that he has set up in place and so if he if you can't trust him on his haircut and you know, the car he drove 
can you trust him on everything else? Well, you can only be especially so with your money, right? So there were the, there were some good. Say what you will about the Michael Lewis book, he did a very good job of capturing, I think, the essence of Sam Bankman-Fried. And there were these uh, passages in the book about Sam flying to D.C. to meet with Mitch McConnell for whatever reason, and uh, Sam would go to his brother's house or the house that was associated with one of the uh, the charities that he was funneling money into. And he would go grab literally a ball of clothes that was his suit and put it no on. Belt. What's that? No belt. No belt, right? It was, the, I think Michael Lewis's ex- description of it was, it was like someone had grabbed all of the elements of a suit and only the suit. So no fancy well, shoes. Well, got no further instructions. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, just exactly. Just get a suit. Yeah, get a suit no and further no further instructions. instructions. So no belt. Certainly no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, like uh, whatever these things are, lapel things. Um, no shoes. I remember when our former editor, Zach Seward, had that tweet uh, when Sam went to Capitol Hill. He uh, it's like he got his shoes right out of Nordstrom Rack and hadn't even undone the laces from the bundle that they're in. (laughs) So Sam actually retweeted that one. But so like, I don't know how See, he was cultivating it. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know. I mean, was he actually just schlubby? Or was he really trying to cultivate the image of Shlubby? It was probably a little bit of both. He probably leaned into the more extreme elements of his, you know, default Shlubbiness. It Um, it charmed the socks off of everyone, including Michael Lewis. He even wore socks. I don't know. I mean, just a reminder, folks, if you have any questions, just raise your hand at any time. Sir. Um, It goes towards like what you're saying about was this cultivating how intentional was all of was any of his actions? And did they just up and get caught? And they're because they were just jumbling money and they were just idiots or was there ever a moment where the prosecution presented like you had the intent? You said, you know what? Take this money because we can probably I mean, the whole uh, what do they call it? the effective altruism? He's like, I'm just going to get put money wherever it is. He didn't care whose money it was. But was there anything more to it that he was, it shows that, yeah, this guy was just out to steal eight billion dollars? So, uh, I mean, just briefly. That I, I think among the press pool, that's something that we were talking about a lot the most. I think that there were a couple moments that the prosecution brought up, particularly in starting around June of like the Terra crash in 2022, where based on conversations, based on balance sheets that were sent to Sam, based on various other evidence, short of something where Sam said, hey, let's take this money that doesn't belong to us and is customer money, suggests pretty point blank that he knew what he was doing and was stealing customer funds. But the question of whether this was a corrupt enterprise from the beginning, I i mean, it's a matter of opinion, but I'd be shocked. And I don't think the jury really had to make a ruling on this in there. But the prosecution basically tried to say, hey, Alameda was set up with bank or FTX was set up using Alameda bank accounts so that they could siphon money to um, you know, Alameda, invest all this money, yada, yada, yada. And I don't think that they ever really made that definitive argument, that definitive case that he was trying to commit fraud from the beginning. And last thing I'll say there is there's this cool New Yorker article that goes into like the Enron fraud as well and kind of how there's parallels where nobody in this situation really sets out or sees themselves at the, as the villain, even towards the bitter end. Like they think there's a way to make the money back. And anyway. The, the thing about the court trial is... The DOJ had to prove that Sam intended to defraud his customers as part of, uh, you know, part of one of the charges, as well as Alameda's lenders and uh, FTX investors. But I think they, you know, I think one of the things they were trying to do is not get too deep into it. They were trying to keep this as high level as possible for the jury, because, again, this is a jury of you know 12 random people who had not, you know, much experience in crypto, if any. They were not deep in this world. You know, most of them had never heard of. Uh, FTX or SBF, apparently, when they were asked about it on the stand. Or, you know, a number of them came from, from finance, though, yeah? I think it was like one guy from traditional okay. finance who was, okay. uh, was like... If, if I remember correctly, that guy, he... Uh, one of he, when everyone, Early on in voir dire, everyone, when everyone was trying to get out of jury duty, that guy specifically tried to make the case that he would not be good for this jury because he didn't know a damn thing about crypto, uh, which is the opposite argument that you want to well, make. Well, I will say there was also a journalist in the press pool who was saying that she had a friend. I should, probably shouldn't name names because I don't know what's on and off the record, but like had a friend who was there, you know, in Vardir, um, part of this jury pool and said everybody knew who he was. Everybody was talking about his hair. Everybody was talking about Sam Bankman fried Like, so that's also yeah. possible. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it goes down to, um, well, again, that was the that was a backup pool that the friend oh, was in. Okay. Yeah, that person there did were, not get Basically, they split the potential pool of jurors up into two. There was one group that was in the courtroom and then another group that was just kind of 
waiting to see if they would get called up. So yeah, there were probably some people who knew who Sam was, but the DOJ did not want to get too deep into, oh, you know, this was a crypto company that did crypto stuff from like its beginning. Uh, they were just going like, you know, this was a company that was set up and at some point fraud happened. And that was the argument they tried to present for however many weeks it was. And that brings, brings us to a really, I think, important question in the big picture. At the onset of this trial, uh, one of the uh, mainstream news outlets, I, w- I, won't, I won't name names, uh, had a headline that uh, with uh, SBF, uh, crypto was on trial. Is that fair? Is that a fair and accurate well, characterization I'll, of this, I'll of this name event? I'll name names because it's a motif or whatever that they uh, repeated in every single article. This is the New York Times, which had good coverage, and we're, I think we're all friends here. But one of the things that the New York Times would put in every, almost every single one of its daily updates was that this trial was sort of putting on trial the, all of the excesses of the industry. And on that, the excesses front, the yeah, on that front, I think it's accurate because this was the company that, and the, the person who was trying to portray himself and become the face of the industry, the, the grandiosity of this all. Yeah, the, the JP Morgan. Yeah. He was, he, SPF positioned FTX to be the JP Morgan, to be, be the backstop, to save all these companies. And in that sense, I think it was accurate. To say that all of crypto was on trial, I mean, uh, crypto already lost that trial. Now we're trying to gain it back. Well, yeah, sure, no, well, just, just one point, though. Surely the J. Pierpont Morgan of crypto is an oxymoron on its face, no? Sure, but we yes. were all calling him that last year. You know, it's, um, I think I agree with Danny because, and you know, I wrote this thing halfway through where there was a point where we had multiple you know, witnesses uh, testified. These were sophisticated investors. They had loaned money or, uh, to Alameda or invested in FTX based on mostly, you know, it sounded like vibes. You know, they weren't looking at audited balance sheets. They weren't looking at like, oh, you know, can you give us like every financial document or financial statement from your founding to now? Because uh, that would have only been a few years. Again, Alameda was like launched in, I think, 2017. So six years ago. These are folks who were, you know, the serious folks who people are entrusting money to. They were putting money into FTX and Alameda based on like, wow, this guy's got a really cool vision for the future. And we like that. And, you know, I think, you know, this obviously did not come up as a key issue in the trial. But I think uh, to Danny's point, yeah, that is absolutely something that crypto was on trial for because, you know, the industry did allow and, you know, encourage the circumstances that led to Sam Bankman-Fried having this, you know, pole position a year and a half ago that then led to this massive collapse. And now we're still, you know, seeing the, I would say, the consequences of that collapse play out today. I mean... I wrote about this at the time, like simply like there's blockchain and then there's the blockchain industry. And I think it's hard to say that the blockchain industry or the crypto industry, and mindful we're in a Bitcoin bar, um, so I'm supposed to differentiate. But there's a difference between the industry and the technology itself. And the industry was certainly on trial. 3AC was a big part of that industry. And they were also a big part of this. Terra was certainly a big part of the industry. And they were also a big part of this. It's the entire thing, if not the tech itself. We have a question from Twitter. So, uh, Thomas, first time, long time. Um, I have a two-part question. And building on this, you, t- you touched on it towards the end. Was there a delineation between Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain as it was sort of like portrayed in, in the courtroom? And the second question that I think about a lot personally, and these are both very different tangents, but I don't want to make Mark do two trips. First question, was Bitcoin delineated from the rest of the industry uh, in the courtroom? Second question, who killed Terra Luna? Because that started all of this. Um, to answer the first part, so as the technology reporter, I think that's why you nudged me. Um, maybe you'll disagree, but I think broadly, no, there were no big crypto distinctions made. And the reason is because they didn't really talk that much about crypto. And they made a very big point of not wanting to talk about crypto. There was a difference that I noted in the opening and closing statements of the defense and the prosecution, which is the prosecution tried to make the point over and over again. And even when the U.S. attorney you know, made a statement afterwards, they said, this is not a crypto thing. This is a fraud, a simple fraud. And they, they kept on making that point over and over again. And they tried to sidestep needing to talk about crypto throughout the trial. The defense kind of tried to make nods to the complicated technology at the core of this tried to kind of talk about market, you know, market makers at the very least, even though that's not crypto technology, but even that they had trouble. They tried to complicate things. They couldn't. So yeah, to answer your question, 
Tara Luna we can talk about another time. Uh, that's yeah. for the next no, trial. The defense, the defense, I, I mean, the defense absolutely tried to that. say, like, okay, certain things are, like, crypto industry practices. Use of omnibus wallets by an exchange, for example. I don't think that really... That, does, that doesn't bode very well for, for the industry, does it? If true. Right. Well, yeah, but also I don't think that really resonated with the jury. I don't think that point was clearly explained. Everyone else is doing it. Why can't we? That's, right. Yeah. That was the defense's argument for a moment of that. And again, stop me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the jury caught on to that or bid on that at all. I think they were just like, okay, so, but you still took the money, right? And that was, you know, that was a game. Also, a lot of it was about U.S. dollar deposits, right? Yeah. Right, um, yeah. And they were able to explain that to the jury. Well, we're going to, we have a whole bunch of other cases coming up in the Southern District that will actually be inevitably tied up in crypto. Uh, the Avi Eisenberg Mango Markets trial, which is uh, Avi Eisenberg was a crypto trader who basically played a crypto exchange's games against itself in, in manipulated markets in order to make off with $110 million. Uh, that trial is going to inevitably get into really deep questions about crypto native concepts, and it will be impossible for the defense or the prosecution to avoid entirely those issues. For this trial, it was a large part of it was simply, as you alluded to, we, there's a bank account that Alameda uses to get money into FTX. Alameda took people's money from there and spent it over here. I mean, right there, you don't even need to touch crypto at all. That's like three or four billion dollars of fraud. That's enough to get them on most of the accounts anyway. They didn't have to lean in to the crypto stuff. And it was honestly, they would put themselves at an unnecessary disadvantage to do so. So they wisely, the prosecution, the prosecution that is, avoided the uh, crypto stuff. So they, we never got into the Bitcoin versus anything else. It was all just dollars that were stolen from people. Other questions? One thing that we definitely should talk about, how many years is Sam Beckman-Fried likely to spend in prison? I, I wrote a thing about this before the trial started. Technically, if you look at the uh, U.S. Department of Justice press release, he's looking at as many as 115 years in prison. I think 110 now because they had to drop one of the charges for complicated reasons we do not need to get into here. I spoke to like a whole bunch of lawyers. None of them think that 115 or 110 years is likely. Given that all of these charges are basically you know, the same crime that he took other people's money and spent it on stuff. Uh, and the fact that it was, you know, billions of dollars worth. Uh, the predictions I've heard range from 20 to maybe 35 years or so uh, is about what I've heard. I, I think everyone I've spoken to would be surprised if it's more than that, just because, you know, this is a white collar financial crime. There were no, you know, no one was killed. No one was, you know, brutally wounded or anything like that. And so it wasn't a violent crime. The amount is kind of insane to think about, you know, purely on a conceptual level. A billion dollars is a lot of dollars and eight billion dollars is, you know, a lot more. So it's hard. A, a, yeah. a, bil a billion here, a billion there. And it's it's pretty pretty We're talking about real money. You're welcome. But, yeah, no, I think uh, they're saying that because of that, because of the sentencing guidelines, probably looking at, you know, no more than three and a half decades. But I mean, what about the fact that he's like the first uh, major crypto CEO on trial, like in this big, highly publicized trial? Like, you don't think they're going to throw the book at him to kind of like set an well, example for other It's the judge executives? who's going to throw the book yeah, now. The judge, it's not the prosecutors. Yeah. The judge isn't necessarily as, as concerned with, oh, the precedent of this first crypto CEO. I think, that, I mean, it's well, the prosecutors like, who have tried to make that well, case Also, no, because the process here is, so what's happening right now is the Office of Pretrial Services and Probation System or something like that. Office of Pretrial Services is putting together a memo. They're going to recommend X number of years in prison based on the sentencing guidelines, the value of the crime, the you know various other factors, the fact that Sam has no priors, he's a first-time offender. And There's a last-time offender, presumably. Yeah. Well, presumably. We'll see. We'll see. We'll there see. might be a sequel. <laughs> Michael say. Lewis was People are asking him for investment advice in prison, so I mean... <laughs> never say never. But that memo is going to go to the judge. There's going to be a hearing. The DOJ is going to weigh in. The defense is going to weigh in. Uh, everyone's going to have their own views. And then, yeah, the judge will make a decision. It's, he's got all the discretion, so he can say, you know, I disagree with this memo. I think it should be a lot more. And he could throw the book at Sam and say, all right, you're going to go to prison. You're going to die in prison. You're here for the rest of your life. Or he could say, you know, if the memo says a couple decades, you know, sure, memo's right, and we'll go for a couple decades. So we won't know until, you know, whenever, March at the earliest. This did underscore for me. I mean, this entire experience, I'm sure for the three of you, was also in education on our legal system. But sure. one thing that this underscored for me specifically in that regard is just the strictness that the United States has um, legally with regards to financial crime specifically. 
I read this New York Times article, like one of the first weeks of the trial after reading tweet after tweet about how Sam deserves like, you know, to spend the rest of his life in prison or 30, 40, 50 years. And it was about this family that was selling like bleach uh, as, as a cure for like COVID, leukemia, all this other stuff. And they got like 14 years was the max sentence for a member of that family. People died. People got, you know, um, poisoned. But anyway, it, it was Wait, just it, kind it didn't of work. Uh, it, it it did not work. They people injected the bleach and it did not work shockingly. And they created a fake church. But anyway, it does put things into perspective. Like when we're talking about this, about how much, you know, he could spend up to 110 years, but that it, it is crazy that people do all this other stuff too. <laughs> One other thing um, on the yeah. sentencing is, I mean, is he expected to be in like a summer camp, like a white collar well, he, facility or, or do or do we think he'll be with, you know, guys with tattoos? Look, on their faces? I don't think we should throw him in the Iron Maiden or something. Right. He didn't he didn't go around shooting people. He just stole. I mean, not just, but he stole a lot of money. Prison is prison. Right. So I mean, he doesn't need to be in solitary confinement. Just put him in. Put him in prison. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Send it, what, should we send it to Guantanamo or something? I don't know. I mean, did you lose money in FTX? I feel like, you know, no, you're I got money how many, how, show of hands. Anyone here lose money in FTX? Wow. Look at well that. done. Uh, before, <laughs> while we're at it, well, anyone here FTX? Anyone here lose money in Celsius? Anyone here lose money in Voyager? Anyone here lose money in crypto? <laughs> oh, come on, come on. Now we're lying. Yeah, no, I was going to say, no one any, anyone, any, Just last one. Anyone lose money in Mt. Gox? No, geez. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so, Y'all are uh, in crypto, right? You know, besides yeah. the one gentleman who raised his hand. We have, we have a question. On the subject of sentencing, do you think him taking the stand is going to like play into that? Potentially like perjury? Yeah, apparently. Well, the Very perjury stuff, I don't know if he'll... I'm curious to see... So the perjury context here, uh, AUSA Sassoon basically proved that he lied uh, under oath to Congress, which is perjury, which is, you know, a crime. So uh, I don't know to what extent that's going to factor in. The DOJ is also alleging that he lied under oath to the jury. I don't know to what extent that's going to factor in. But the judge, I would say charitably, is not a fan of Sam Bankman-Fried. And no. so to the extent that that might factor in the judge might say, wow, you are a really terrible person who lied to me and the jury and wasted everyone's time. And I think it's just like the absurdity of him. Like, it's not shocking that he went in front of Congress and obviously lied. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it just shows the scale of this all. Yeah, and it's something that the DOJ did not really get into besides just proving it, which was surprising. But yeah, we'll see. Sir. Thank you for your help and coverage over these months and years, especially Ian, for his, uh, his work exposing all of this. Should... Sam Bankman-Fried, given that he's very influential, be given access to the internet for the future? That will be up to the judge. I don't think he has access right now. I think he's still banned from the internet because of... That's got a smart, you know? He's got yeah. the other trial coming up, right? Right, yeah. There is also, for what it's worth, there is a second trial where he's going to be tried on charges that I think are it's like securities fraud, money laundering, and... Uh, Attempting to bribe the Chinese government. Join us here again in four months. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and election election charges too. Yeah. Right? This or? is the this no, is the campaign finance. They dropped campaign finance. Got dropped. Well, that's no fun. Yeah. Well, they they folded it into money the conspiracy to commit money laundering for the last one or wire fraud I think one of them. But yeah, there's no campaign finance charge in trial number two. But we're gonna find out I guess by February whether or not the DOJ wants to proceed on trial number two. They might. Uh, they might say, okay, well, you know, we've got him dead to rights on these other, you know, crazy charges. So we'll just go through a whole thing again. Uh, if they do, I imagine the sentencing will be delayed, but also everything else is going to be delayed. So, yeah, check back with us in uh, four or five months and we'll see where we're at. Nick, isn't there a, a question in a second? There's never, isn't there a possibility of appeal in this case? After sentencing. After sentencing. So, right. So that's also, if there is a trial number two, sentencing gets pushed back. There will for sure be an appeal. I would be genuinely surprised if not an appeal, but it can't happen until the sentence has been made. So we might not see the appeal until, you know, whenever, end of 2024. Question. Thanks, everybody, for your coverage. I have a twofold question. My name is Naka Etenirio. I'm from Bevel. We're Web3 Consultancy. First question for you all is, how did the litigation coverage covering a trial compare to your normal day-to-day coverage? And do you feel like now you have a hunger to do more of that specifically? And then... I think that he's already going to answer. And then the second question is a little bit of a kind of a full circle type of question, right? So Ian's piece about a year ago to the date was really interesting. Is there anything right now that you're looking at or thinking about 
that you think in another year from now is going to be front and center and potentially popping off? Well, I'll start with the uh, the litigation coverage. Uh, we, at least I, had no experience covering court cases before this. And I quickly came around to it. I think that we got a, a, write, a write-in on our newsletter from a, uh, what was it, Nick, a legal correspondent or oh, a yeah, legal yeah. communications person who said that my uh, explanation of stipulations, which is basically how lawyers agree, uh, both like the defense and the prosecutors both agree that a fact is in fact a fact, that my uh, description of stipulations was uh, informative and fun to read. So I, I, really I believe you called it soul-sucking. Oh, the, I believe those well, the process was soul sucking, yeah, but the stipulations are how you avoid the soul sucking aspect. So, no, I, in all seriousness, I very much enjoyed covering uh, court cases, and uh, I definitely have a hunger for more. Liz, I mean, yeah, like I went from covering coins to covering uh, court cases, so I can say definitely that um, I started covering the hearings back in December when Sam first was like extradited to the U.S. and like had his first hearing in the U.S. And um, I certainly think like it's interesting learning about like the U.S. justice system and all of that. And um, just like Nick Day did just, like an excellent job of like coordinating the coverage. Like I would follow him into battle. So like, you know, I definitely, um, yeah, love doing it. And like, I hope we're going to do more of it with like Avi Eisenberg and, you know, with Alex Mashinsky. So, um, yeah, it was really eye opening, I think. And uh, I think Sam can offer some thoughts on this since he's a tech guy who went yeah, to Matt. the court coverage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe to tackle the second part of your question around like looking forward. I mean, what's the next shoe to drop? Yeah. Well, so I don't know. Um, what I will say though is, is I do think I, I feel like our jobs have changed a lot, really not since the coverage, but since FTX happened where it did feel in the lead up to FTX. It's like interesting. We got that terror question, but like it felt like an important role for crypto journalists was to, for lack of a better word, um, expose or at least interrogate these sorts of, you know, big growing technologies, companies, projects within this, these ecosystems that have valid questions around them that because of the number go up mentality have not been interrogated by lay people um, or by, you know, crypto diehards. Um, and that kind of felt like our role back then a year and a half ago. Um, but ever since, you know, Terra Luna crashed and then FTX in particular, it does feel like our role. So for, I, I would love to do more court coverage. And this was the most fun, interesting experience I've had at Coindesk. But I feel challenged, like where it now feels like our role might be to find, you know, positive, like, it, for lack of, yeah, I guess, like positive things that are going on, because, you know, sentiment and vibes have swung in the complete other direction. And you want to tell people things they don't already know. And people aren't really seeing many positive things from the outside looking in. So I want to do more. Well, there's coverage. the ETF. But yeah, but like the ETF, I mean, we're at a Bitcoin bar again. It's like, yeah. I, I don't know um, how people read into that. But yeah, our jobs are like really complicated. But I think we have now. another like unique role as like crypto reporters, because I remember like I was speaking to some uh, reporters who are like, have had long careers in the mainstream media. And they were telling me like, um, you know, I had an interned at the BizTech unit at NBC. And this one guy told me, you know, take advantage of being at that crypto trade pub, right? Because when you're in an industry, like covering an industry like crypto, like there are a lot of industry insiders who like, they don't trust the mainstream media, right? So like, they're more apt to tell you things and to like trust you with scoops, like the way Ian Allison was trusted with, you know, the Alameda balance sheet. And they are to like go to the mainstream media and, you know, pass this kind of information off. So, I mean, like we're in a unique position, like to build that kind of rapport and trust with these companies and, you know, to expose, um, you know, I mean, to bring accountability to the space. So I think that we have to like, you know, seize upon that opportunity. And that's something that we can do that, you know, a lot of other publications can't. So I'm going to offer an answer. Mark, real quick, I think a few minutes ago, there might have been a question uh, somewhere in the back. OK, uh, well, we'll so get to you in a minute. Whoever don't want to re-raise their hand. I think I'm the only one of the four of us who has covered court cases before, I've covered a couple uh, civil litigation cases, CFTC, you know, suing people who were accused of defrauding people. This was, I think, different because first off, it was much longer. It was a month. It was not just a few days. So different from that. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it was a good experience. One of the things that really got me was a number of witnesses did mention the balance sheet reporting. It came up a number of times during the trial, which was, you know, I think, it is important if, you know, we're in a position to say, okay, well, something's not right here or something's really weird here that we're able to bring that to light and let people interrogate as they will. You know, again, a year ago, Coindus didn't publish an article saying, hey, you know, Alameda is stealing customer funds or whatever. We published an article saying, hey, here's this like really odd thing about the accounting going on here. And uh, that 
I think arguably it did start the uh, collapse of FTX, but what it really did was get people talking about, oh, wait, that's really weird. And then got CZ to tweet, okay, well, you know, we're going to dump our FTT holdings. And that got Carolyn Ellison to tweet, yeah, sure, we'll buy it. And then revealing they couldn't. Ill-advised tweet. Yeah, it led to Sam tweeting, assets are fine. For for the record, if you have a floor that cannot be breached uh, in the asset that you hold millions and billions of dollars of, the worst possible thing to do is to tell the market that you really need to keep it above a certain price point because people will then freak out and push it yes. well below the price point, which is yes. exactly what happened. Very hard so these people were, were really quite idiotic. Yeah. I, I also realized I, I forgot the end part of that, what, like what's the next shoe to drop. I don't think there's going to be anything like Sam Bankman-Fried because of that sentiment shifting. There's no story like this where I can't think of a single figure in this industry who is viewed the way that Sam was viewed. So I, it I was that immediate. I, I do not agree, but who do you who um, do you think it is? No, I'm gonna. I, I will reserve well, on that for now. What I, your imagination? There yeah. are, I think, a couple of key figures that you know are being looked at, and we'll see how that goes. Wait, come on, you gotta. Well, I think the obvious ones is we know there are investigations Z. into Binance, but that's different because is if it? anything happens with Binance, it's not gonna come out of nowhere, and that's what I was gonna say. And like, okay. and you look at Tether. Oh, okay. Tether might have done a lot of similar things, although it's a completely but, different thing. And, to and SPF, they're still around. What's the lesson that they, you know, that their anthropic investment paid off, and yeah, so yeah. you know yeah. they filled the hole? I don't know. There will be no surprises like this. Question. But it'll happen again. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming and covering that again. Um, just a quick question. Is there more clarity about the 8 billions? Where are they going? Is this just a bad trade or more on that? Well, it's really a, a mix of different things. Uh, for what it's worth, which is quite a lot actually, the, uh, the bankruptcy estate, if you will, of FTX has succeeded in getting back, I think at last count, at least $7 billion of the $8 billion. So they've clawed back a lot of the money. And the reason why is because, well, not the reason why, but the money was in real estate. Okay, well, you can sell the real estate. It was in uh, investments in companies. You can claw some of those back. It was in trades. Well, if those trades went to zero, you might not be able to get that back. But the estate has been able to get back a lot of the money. So uh, wherever it went, it wasn't just flushed down the toilet. So um, that's something to think about as well. I, I think the real figure is probably going to be a little bit below $7 billion, But yeah, there are they do have significant recoveries from... I believe as of a month ago. I'm not really sure where they're at, but that is going to, the bankruptcy estate does say it's making progress. But that being said, that doesn't necessarily mean that retail investors will get their money in anytime soon, right? Because they're like the last people to be paid in the bankruptcy the, process the or? Timing is TBD. The last I heard is they do expect retail investors will get back, I think, 85% of whatever's recovered, uh, which is going to be, good. you know, in the high billions. So yeah, it's not a complete loss. Wow. Gentleman in the back had a question. So we are ob uh, obvious, um, um, obviously are here Bitcoiners, and um, the, the question is, uh, again, for those uh, 8 billion or uh, a small part of it which would be really stolen. So when, when basically me media is saying um, to people, okay, they are coins, they have value, and so on, what is actually the role of the media of educating people that there's uh, like direct link between coins and value and uh, how you see the role of the media in actually creating scandals like Sam Bankman's Freed. Maybe as a tech reporter, I can speak to some of this, where I think the media does play a role. I think outlets like Coindesk, mainstream outlets and so on play a role in, you know, just circulating knowledge to people that, hey, there's this thing, doesn't matter what it does, but the price went way up. And so, I mean, it would be weird to pretend that there isn't a role, but I think that we also play an important role. And I think we've all tried to do our jobs in terms of informing people about the substance or lack thereof when it comes to these things. So Terra, again, going back to that very different situation than the FTX situation, but we tried to write about what was going on with that token, the mechanics of it or lack thereof. Um, and so educating people on those things that aren't coins, but actually have more of a veneer of legitimacy, I think is where we actually try to focus even more of our efforts. So I think people do understand broadly coins are gambling, but it is our role to kind of reiterate that. And, yeah, and I mean, we, the, we as the media should take accountability. You know, I was at the dentist on Monday and going through the, uh, the pile of magazines that one finds at the dentist. And I saw Fortune and there was a big, big head of hair at the top of the Fortune. I was like, oh, I know what this who, is. Who could that be? Yeah, who could that be? And I pulled it out. And indeed, it was the September 2022 edition of Fortune with uh, Sam's mug on the cover. And I read uh, as I was waiting for my... my uh, I did not have a cavity, I should, I'll let you know. But uh, as I was waiting to find out that I did not have a cavity, 
I read this this uh, interview and it presented this media depiction, presented Sam as this the white knight, the JP Morgan, the savior of crypto who was swooping in to, to rescue the bad companies, BlockFi and Voyager from imminent de- uh, demise. And, you know, th- these are things that Sam was doing, right? He was doing it with customer funds, but he was doing it. And the media was depicting him in this savior role. I mean, we as the media had a very large role to play in building up the myth of Sam Bankman-Fried. And like Coindesk will take will take some credit for the fall, but we did not, like I said earlier, we did not expose the fraud. We just pointed to the strangeness of the situation that we found. And I think that that's where the crypto media could shine because you wouldn't see a New York Times or a Washington Post or a journal article about the balance sheet unless they'd have something more substantive than that they would have continued to carry the water of this guy. Oh, wait. So just to be clear, how deep did you have to dig through the magazine pile to find that? Oh, it was right. <laughs> the, it was right I, didn't, I, I wasn't like, I didn't go out to find that one. I just was looking at the stand of magazines and I saw what could only be Sam's hair. So another question from Twitter. This is from Thomas, uh, myself. Um, one, one of the um, sub sagas that I've been interested in, I don't know if they, this came up in the courtroom or from your learnings in general, I'm fascinated about the time that SBF spent in jail in the Bahamas, specifically. Like, is there any context or color from that experience? What was that like? <laughs> any learnings from that? Uh, unfortunately, the one reporter who went to the Bahamas to investigate that uh, is no longer with Coindesk. But I read her article on it. So from a year later, having read someone else's description of it, uh, it was probably not very pleasant. Um, it sounds like this jail was not. It was. I mean, obviously, jail is not nice, but you know. I, I on, think Bahamas jail is definitely worse than America yeah, it, jail. Yeah, it was. You know, it was not quite. You know what Sam would have been expecting. Uh, my understanding is, you know, they didn't offer his medication. They didn't offer. Uh, he was a vegan. They didn't offer vegan food. Um, so he had a lot of. You know, again, he was there for maybe four or five days before he changed his mind at extradition and came to the U.S. I don't know if it was specifically because of the jail, but in the absence of other factors, I'm sure it was one of the you know reasons. I mean, have you ever seen the show like Locked Up Abroad? Yeah, like there's like a show where like Americans get like locked up abroad and like, you know, far flung locale. Like, like, I feel like it's just, it was just like an episode of Locked Up Abroad, or, like Midnight Express. Have you seen that movie? Oh, like, yeah. It was, yeah, like, like that's how I picture his time in prison. Like, except like not even as bad. Cause like, I mean, like vegan food, like he was eating vegan food in prison. Like, come on. But like, <laughs> I'm waiting for the episode of Locked Up Abroad where Sam McMinnfrey goes to prison in the Bahamas for like four I'd days. Like Swiss <laughs> prison. Maybe you'll get fondue there. That sounds good. Question. It'll be- so in terms of some of the other Alameda employees who testified for the government, after having watched their testimony, where would you put them on the spectrum of just being naive and being wrapped up in all of it and being like, intentionally committing fraud? Well, there were, we heard from, let's see, I think five employees of FTX slash Alameda, not including Sam. I think that this was a very close kept secret, right? I don't think that the general population of these companies had any idea as to what was really going on until the very end. So Caroline, Nishad, and Gary definitely knew at various points in time, but they definitely knew. Sam, of course, knew. Uh, We heard from Adam Yudidia. He learned about this weird bug in their accounting software that, see, we have this $8 billion figure, and it just so happens that this bug indicated that Alameda was $8 billion in the hole when it was, in fact, $8 billion in the hole, but this bug also added another $8 billion. So like he was aware of that bug, but then they fixed the bug and he had his suspicions, but I think, but he was not fully aware of it. I don't know. Among the insiders, the one that I empathize the least with is uh, Nishad. He presented himself as this smooth talker and then, okay, well, he knew about the, that they were taking customer money and then he personally took out a loan to buy a house, right? That, that just takes this to another plane of existence. You're not just perpetuating the fraud, you're taking the money to enrich yourself personally. There um, was another developer, Christian Drapey, who testified. But he didn't know anything. Right, no, he, yeah, his thing was he didn't know anything, but he testified about an all-hands meeting that Alameda held where Carolyn Ellison told everyone about it. And from his testimony, 
it does sound like, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, rank and file employees were just not in the loop about what was going on. Uh, certainly the senior executives were, but it also sounds like, and this is from based on reporting even before the trial began, that FTX was a very kind of, uh, you know, top down company where the leaders had a lot of information and gave a lot of orders and everyone else just kind of had to do, you know, whatever their specific thing was, but they weren't privy to the larger picture of, you know, anything going on there. Question, sir. The two characters that were not in the courtroom, but maybe should have been um, Sam Trabuco and Dan Friedberg. What are your feelings about these two? And what do you think is going to happen with either? I, I want to read the fan fiction about what happened to Sam Trabuco. Uh, I don't, I have no idea. As for Dan Friedberg, I, I think that he's indicted. I don't know. Was he? I don't know if he was indicted or not. I do know that he... His lawyer gave an interview to some news outlet like a year ago saying that he was talking to prosecutors. So it's very possible he received a non-prosecution agreement or some kind of cooperation agreement wherein he's not going to you know, be pursued. But obviously, I don't have you know, more details than that. As far as Trabuco goes, yeah, I've, he disappeared as far as I can tell. He's on a boat somewhere doing whatever it is people on yachts do. Just be rich. I yeah, think I, that's the main thing you do on a yacht. You he he, he basically left right before everything collapsed, so he timed that pretty, you know, pretty well. So we'll have time for a couple more questions, but uh, first, I just want to make sure that we discuss something very important that came out during this trial, which is the artistic talents of the CoinDesk staff. Um, yeah, yeah, Nick, you've uh, you not only coordinated our coverage. But um, you, uh, you showed your, your uh, knack for courtroom sketch artistry. Tell, tell us how that started. Honestly, it started as a joke. You know, I was, uh, we were waiting for things to happen. So I just kind of sketched, I think it was like Sam. It was a terrible sketch. No one who looked at it is going to think I have, you know, a modicum of uh, artistic ability. And I don't. Totally fair. I'm completely but fine it, with it that. Deve it developed over the course of the trial. If you compare his early sketches <laughs> to, to the last it's ones. It's like I'm, the blue period for Picasso, right? Yeah. There was, uh, I don't know it if was, this is going to come up, there was a competition, too, between you and Danny, because when it was brought up was. to the actual sketch artist, not to diminish your sketch artistry, um, they had a preference. According to specifically Danny, they, denigrate his work, um, the <laughs> sketch artist, the, the professional sketch artist who, whose job it is to go to court to capture these scenes, uh, they, I, was, I was speaking to one of them and, and she said, uh, you know, that guy Nick at Coindesk, he's just making this utter crap. Uh, <laughs> and he said, she said his name. Uh, and he's like, we're, we're making jokes about how bad it is. And then I, the first time, I don't draw, but I, I, I spent like doing a very monotonous Danny blew day. me out of the water. He I, is a much better I, artist. Well, I spent like four hours just trying to directly capture exactly what just was Just to set the me. scene, hold on. We're sitting in the overflow room, and you can see the monitor. Oh, and then I was like, like making frantic. You can see like, a corner of the audience. You can see like six people in the audience. And all day during one of the key days of testimony, <laughs> no, it was, you can it was see not Danny key. very clearly sketching yeah. for six hours. Yeah. Uh, I have my, my notebook over there. Uh, people do right show and tell later. I, I did not but, know about this competition. This is news to me. Well, she gave me an A+, plus, okay? <laughs> so I won. And she uh, called okay. you crap. But <laughs> No, I, I love that. Um, no, but what, so I sent it to Mark and uh, Nick Baker as a joke. I did not realize it was in the article or on Twitter until I came out of the courtroom like six or seven hours later. I just see it like going up on Twitter. It's like, oh, Wow. Okay. But it became a thing. Like It, it wasn't just us like, having this. It wasn't really a competition. I won. Um, but it was, it, it, with all seriousness, we, uh, like a lot of the press, the, the, court, the, the, the SBF press corps ended up at the end of the trial during some of the more monotonous days just trying to capture courtroom scenes because we were jealous of the, uh, of the sketch artist. And, you know, the sketch artist work, it, it, it speaks volumes. Sam, you, uh, you, you heard from another one of our... He wants me to tell this story yeah, um, for some know? reason. But it is pretty funny. One of the sketch artists, according, um, did, did they tell you or did they tell the New York Post? They told the New York, they they told told the New York Post. Post and I think us. it's in the New York Post right now or the Washington Post. I, I didn't see the article. It probably got written up. But, you know, apparently. So one of these 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 sketch artists who is more of a fan of Danny's than of Nick's, unfortunately, um, said that she was in the courtroom um, next door to us when Don Jr. was testifying. Um, in the other big case of the week. And she went, he, as he was leaving the courthouse, walked past the sketch artist who later on went to the SBF courthouse and spoke to us. Um, 
he went up to her and he said, hey, make sure to make me look sexy. And then he pulled up a picture of that like AI generated Sam oh, Bankman yeah. Freed that we've all seen on Twitter. Yes, with with the, um, with the Chad cheekbones and I think yeah. that's been reported on. If not, you heard it, heard it here first. Um, but yeah, Danny couldn't tell that story though. No, no, it had to be. <laughs> Thomas, any other questions from Twitter? Okay, other questions from from the audience here before we wrap it up. So just to take just to take us out. Your final takeaways from this whole experience, Liz. Oh, why? Well, <laughs> like, order, you know? Yeah. No, I need it to be like linear. Right? Okay. <laughs> Come on, Nick. Nick, then. You know, I think, um, gosh, having to pick a single takeaway, there was a lot that came out during this trial, and we touched on this before. It really is amazing to me just how much of what we heard about in court was just basic. Um, you know, it was super simplified, of course, but there were a lot of really basic, like, you know, do some due diligence, do some second uh, checking of like whatever. Sam Bankman Freed rose to the position he was in because he was in a system that allowed him to do so. And uh, I don't think that system has meaningfully changed in crypto yet. Obviously, AI is now kind of taking that role instead of crypto. But if we're not careful, I think that there is a real possibility that there will be a Sam 2.0. And the reason I say this is because FTX really felt a lot like Quadriga CX, which is a Canadian crypto exchange that fell apart and lost, a, it was like a couple hundred million dollars, I think. It was not as much, but it was also- it Seemed like a big deal at the time. Yeah, it was a huge deal at the time because this was five years ago. And Quadriga CX, in turn, felt a lot like Mt. Gox. So we're seeing the story repeat over and over again. And, you know, what's to say it's not gonna repeat again? And we, I haven't seen anything so far that says, you know, yeah, the crypto industry's learned and is in a position to avoid it. So I, th I think that's my one takeaway. It's not specific to the trial, but it's kind of, you know, been hitting me in the face for the last month, so. Liz. I mean, I want to say something really profound, but like nothing's really coming to mind. I mean, I guess this is my hope for the crypto industry here is that I feel like there was so, like there was such a circuit, like media circus created by this whole Sam Bankman-Fried trial. And um, it kind of created this image that the crypto industry is just like um, degenerate kind of space is just rife with fraud. I mean, that is kind of accurate in a sense, but at the same time, like, you know, I hope that this PR problem that crypto has won't leave journalists thinking, oh, well, the space is just so rife with fraud that, you know, everything's just a scam off the bat. So we shouldn't even bother investigating it. I hope people will, like, you know, take a look and say, OK, you know, well, there's still, you know, you know, retail investors who are like putting their hard earned money into these uh, earned products or, you know, these, um, you know, exchanges and trading or whatever. And they deserve, you know, to be protected by, you know, consumer protection agencies and by the law and, you know, um, not to be built out of billions of dollars. My, my biggest takeaway more from the past year than from the trial is I think we saw a lot of virtue signaling on the part of the crypto industry when Sam got caught around, hey, he doesn't represent us. He is, you know, terrible. We hate him more than you even do. Hey, New York Times, you know, you're in his pocket and you're the problem, not us. But I, I, I think that broadly there has been, um, you know, a, a failure of recognition on the part of, you know, the broader industry to just kind of realize that this is an industry problem. And I do think that it persists. And I think that there are a lot of projects out there that are pretty sus and doing similar things. And until they get caught, um, people are totally fine turning a blind eye to it. So, I mean, that, that sounds pretty cynical. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I, I really do think or hope that at least from a strategic PR angle, people start to recognize that calling these things out, investors and so on, is a benefit to your bottom line because you can't have this happening again. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest takeaway was the it was a very humbling experience to just watch someone who was on this, this precipice for a while, such a long time, fall off it, end up in court. In court, you're just another person under the law, right? You're, if you're being prosecuted, you're being prosecuted. The outcome could be the same no matter who you are. Like, it, it just being in a courtroom, it felt so different, right? I think I heard someone say that in life, there are two arenas where you see the great human dramas. It's, it's in the hospital and it's in the courtroom. And that might be why you see on TV so many shows about hospitals and courtrooms. But in court, Sam was just Sam. And even though he was so high up before, now he's brought down. And we had a, a very uh, good, I think, note in the newsletter a couple of days ago where Nick pointed out, like, it's just worth acknowledging this is a guy who 
you know, he f***ed up in a criminal way and now he's going to face uh, decades in prison. And it's just it's not to say that he didn't do it or he's not he doesn't deserve what he's going to get. But it's definitely worth just thinking about that. We have one one more question. I have one more question, which was a follow up to my earlier question about intent. Because, and you reminded me about the media's role in calling this stuff out. He went on, I think it was like April of 2022. He was on a podcast. I can't remember which one. And he was like, hey, what if we made this magic box? Like, yep, yeah. This is the odd lot. Did odd that box. come up? Did that come no, up in the trial? Not that and, did not. And he said, God forbid sad. anyone ever comes out and it just like admits like, holy shit, I'm I'm full of it in front weirdly, of the whole world again. Weirdly enough, that interview did not come up. But prosecutors Should've. did play a different interview with Matt Levine and Sam Bankman fried the, the the box I don't even remember that one but yeah, I do remember that happened the, the mon- you put the money in the box in the magic box who knows what happens to the box but it becomes more money it was ba- it was that 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 was play- out of context it though. was out of context that was about other things. he was making fun of D five he well I mean you know everything is uh, self effacing in the context of that conversation he was kind of trying to disparage D five I think but in doing you know so, he said other he incriminating himself. stuff in that same conversation <laughs> that was a big part of you know so, the case. One thing I will just add um, before we wrap it up, I'm tempted to say, tempted to say my biggest takeaway from the whole thing was not your keys, not your coins. But, but, hold your applause, hold your applause. You're not going to like to the audience. So I think that there's a more sobering takeaway, though, which is I think about that Super Bowl ad with Larry David and the slogan that they say it, which was a very funny ad, to be fair, uh, for Larry David. Um, but at the end, the slogan was, it's the fast and easy way to get into crypto. And I mean, I mean, that ad was terrible in so many ways. Like it was like literally playing on FOMO, like don't be like Larry, but the whole idea like, oh, we're going to, we're going to make it easy. We're going to make it easy for retail to get involved. And I feel like this is not what a lot of people in the industry want to hear, but maybe, maybe mass adoption is, is, is not the most important thing in the short term or in the near term. Like, you know, like not if you really want to practice, not your keys, not your coins. And it's not easy. Right. It's, it's nerve wracking. It's 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 if you you know, it's it's not like, you know, going on Amazon and just doing add to cart. Right. Like it takes some it's, tell me if you disagree. But like, I feel like maybe the more important thing is that you have to slowly educate people how to um, if you really believe in this stuff, which SBF did not. But if you really believe in this stuff, maybe the thing is more just about educating people and just waiting a long time. And you're not going to. You're not going to get the 10x for your VCs right away. You're not going to get mass adoption, and, and that's not what it's really about. So, I feel like in that way, in that way at least, I think um, FTX was the antithesis of what it's supposed to be about. But I would like to thank uh, Thomas at PubKey for uh, for hosting us. Thank you to uh, Nick Day, Liz Napolitano, Sam Kessler, Danny Nelson. Uh, And thank you to all of you for coming out tonight. It was a lot of fun.